Amen. You may be seated. Might have to whisper. I don't want to. I don't want to blast you away. We'll be in Galatians chapter six this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Galatians chapter six. And uh, my screen's giving me away this morning. We want to talk about a pretty simple uh, topic. Uh, it's something that really we understand from a very young age, but we fail to apply it spiritually, and that's where we end up with disappointment and frustration and depression and anxiety in life because we, we forget this simple principle. And I want to talk about this morning, what are you planting? What are you planting in your life? And as we read, we're going to start, like I said, in verse number 7 of Galatians chapter 6. The Bible says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I thank you for this time together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the promises that you give us, God, that if we will sow to you, that we will sow to the Spirit, that, God, you will give us eternal life, that you will give us the blessings that we seek in life. I pray, Lord, as we look at your word today, Lord, help it to be clear and help it to be useful and help us to apply it to our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to spend some time um, looking at this, this basic concept, and that's this. It's the law of the harvest. So the first point today is we just want to look at the law of the harvest in general. It's a really simple concept, right? So, so kids understand this from a very young age. For example, my, um, my four-year-old, Caitlin, no three. She's only three, right? Is that right? I can't remember how old she is. She's three or four, somewhere in that range. But my three-year-old understands that there is a cause for something and an effect for something. So for example, if she's really good in the store, she feels that that cause should be a, a effect her in that she should get a prize, right? Of course, she deserves M&Ms or she deserves a prize. Now, I have to take some responsibility in that. I understand she is the youngest and I am the worst spoiling dad in the history of dads ever. They don't even have to ask for it. They just have to look at it. And I'm like, well, yes, you can have that. And so my kids know that. And at three, she understands, well, if I'm good, that cause should have the effect that I get something. Now, she understands the opposite of that, too, to the point where if she's not good. So, so a good test for whether Caitlin's going to have a good day or not is to walk through Walmart. Just take a stroll through Walmart, and I'll know what kind of behavior I'm going to get out of Caitlin that day. And if she's not good as she walk, we walk through Walmart, as soon as we come to the middle aisle and start coming up, and she can sense that our trip is almost over, she starts making her case. Well, Dad, I didn't scream, and I didn't throw anything, and I didn't yell at you the whole time, and I'll say, well, what about when you did this? But I didn't do that the whole time. I was kind of good. Can I still get a treat? She understands that her behavior, that her actions are going to have a result. They're either good or bad results. We understand that from a young age. It's a very simple concept. As we look at the, the outline, it's the idea of investment and return, right? If I put money into something and it's a good investment, I'll get money back out of it. If I put money into something that's a bad investment, I'm not getting my money back, right? I, I, I love my mother-in-law, but I would not advise you taking any financial advice from my mother-in-law. She's a wonderful woman. But since I've been married to Leah for the last 10 years, and even the year before I was married to her while we were just engaged, I have seen at least 
at least 30 pitches for different products that are going to be what make my mother-in-law a millionaire, all right? Some of you, and don't take offense, maybe you're doing great with some of this stuff. She tried to sell me Monavi, if you've ever heard of Monavi, I'm sure someone's been to your door in the last years. Some kind of juice from Africa that will heal everything, that's what it was. And I would say, well, where are the tests? Don't worry about the tests, people are doing great with this stuff. Okay, I'm not buying this from you. She had this other stuff um, called Plexus that she tried to sell me. She had this other stuff called, what were the herbs called? This was her pitch to me one time. Have you ever done a cleanse? No, I've never done a cleanse, and I'm not going to do a cleanse. I don't need to be cleansed inside. I take a shower every day. That's as much cleansing as I need. I don't need what you're selling me. She said, if you take this tea, and you just got to stay close to the bathroom for a whole week. Said, who's going to buy that? How do I pitch that door to door? This was her business model for how she was going to make her millions. But if you put money into a bad investment, you're not getting it back. And we understand that to be true. There's, there's some people that you're not going to lend money to because you're never going to see it again. And there's other people that you know, if you think about lending, they're going to give it back to you 10 times. And, and that's just simple concept of cause and effect. Not only investment and return, we have that idea of cause and effect, like I've said a couple times. And it's basically the idea that the things that I do or the way that I behave is going to result in something. There has to be a result to what I do, to what I say, to what I believe, to how I act. There's going to be a result. And this is a biblical principle. We're giving it right here in Galatians. He says, God's not mocked. Whatever you sow is what you're going to reap. And so I want to look at this. I actually have a quote here. This is um, from, it's actually George Broadman the Younger. And you have to say the Younger because his dad was a missionary to Burma. He was one of the first Baptist missionaries to Burma. His son grew up on the mission field, became a Christian, followed Christ, and he actually started some of uh, the greatest churches in the awakening. He's a great guy to study. Some, it's a name I really, as a pastor, had heard very few times. But here's what he says. He says, the law of the harvest is to reap more than you sow. Think about this. Is to reap more than you sow. So if you sow an act, you're going to reap a habit. You sow a habit, you're going to reap a character. You sow a character and you reap your destiny. Or in other words, that destiny, what he's saying is, who you are going to become ultimately is determined by the actions that you take. It's a direct line. And so as you sow actions, uh, you know, in our Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about Moses. And we contrasted Moses with David. Moses worked his whole life following Christ and living a faithful life, but never got to the promised land. And, and you could say, well, that's because he sinned. You know, he broke the Ten Commandments, literally, like broke the stones. Or he, you know, he hit the rock instead of listening to God. But really what it boiled down to is that Moses never had a repentant spirit in all that time. His actions continued to be, um, God, we need to fix this. For example, when he came down and the golden calf was built by Aaron and the Israelites that, that had lost faith in God, he didn't have a mourning spirit. He had anger. He broke the Ten Commandments right then. He, uh, he, he came to God and basically said, all right, which ones do we kill? Do we kill all of them? Do we kill this half over here? The ones that are still in their house, the ones that are outside their house? Tell me which ones. We're going to kill them. Which was still, he was, he was trying to do what God wanted him to do, but his heart was never in line with what God's heart was. It wasn't that God was mad at the people. It was that God was, had a broken heart from the sin. And you look here, what you've got to realize is what you do in your everyday life is going to result in who you're going to be and the, the, whether or not you fulfill the God-given potential that's in your life. Whether or not you're going to be what God gave you the potential to be is determined by 
actions, habits, character, and ultimately becomes who you are. Another way we want to look at this as we think about the, the law of the harvest is this. I've got a simple equation here, and it's in your, it's in your uh, outline there. <laughs> it goes like this. What I say I believe plus what I do equals what I actually believe. So as we talk about sowing into our lives and the things that we're going to see results years down the road, this is what matters. Because we can all say we believe in Christ, right? We can all say we want to follow Christ. We can all say we love Christ above and beyond everything else. But our actions are going to speak a lot louder than those words. And in fact, our actions, the things that we do, combined with what we say we believe, is what we actually believe, right? So if I told you I love my wife, but then I mistreat my wife, I call her names all the time, I'm not nice to her, you see me in the parking lot, I just smack her, what's going to speak louder? The fact that I say I love her or the actions you see me doing, right? And so you're going to take what I say, well, maybe he, he, he wants to love her, but he doesn't really love her because his actions don't allow for that. Here's why the Christian church is called hypocrite more than anything else. Because we say we want to follow Christ, but then the world watches our actions, the world watches our attitude, the world watches our hatefulness, and they don't see love, they don't see the love of Christ that we're called to portray. They see, well, they say they're this, but they don't act like that. They say they follow Christ and they love Christ, but that's not what I see in their life. And so what we really see is that what I say I believe and what I actually do result in what I really believe. That, that's a telltale sign of what I truly believe. The Bible says it this way, by their fruits you shall know them. In other words, if I'm a believer and I'm a follower of Christ and I have a real relationship with Christ, I didn't just pray a prayer when I was six and then never touch the church door again. Right? If I'm truly a believer in Christ, I didn't just pray a prayer when I was uh, six or seven and then spend the rest of my life chasing whatever I wanted to chase. Because let me tell you something, when the Spirit comes into your life and affects your life, it changes every aspect of your life. Now, we have carnality in our lives. That's the truth. There are some of us that invited Christ into our lives, and the Spirit came in, and we blocked Him off in one little section. We said, all right, God, here's Sunday morning. You can have this. Stay out of my wallet. Stay out of my, my calendar. Stay out of my hobbies. Stay out of my relationships. Stay out of my friendships. And then, this is the funny thing, as soon as we do that, we say, God, why aren't you blessing my finances? You told me to stay out of it. You said to get out of that. I, you just want me on Sunday morning. Well, God, why aren't you blessing my family? You locked him out of all these aspects of your life, and then we turn around and blame him when things don't go the way that we think they should. Now, here's the thing. Just following Christ does not mean you're going to have a pain-free, worry-free, um, difficulty-free life. But when you're focused on Christ, it doesn't matter what pain you face, it doesn't matter what worry you face, it doesn't matter what difficulty you face, you understand that he's got a plan and his plan's better than yours anyhow. That's Christian life. That's sowing and reaping. That's really believing. When what I believe in my heart affects what I do with my hands and feet, that's when I really believe it. So not only that, I've got one more way I want to illustrate this idea of sowing and reaping. I really want you to get this idea that what I'm doing now is going to have an effect on my life. The decisions I make now, the actions I have now, the attitudes I have now are going to have an effect on my life. And this is a simple uh, a simple way that I like to think about it is the uh, thermostat temperature and thermometer. All right, if you think about your life, this, the thermostat of your life is what you're sowing, okay? So, so the thermostat in your life 
Or in other words, what's going to change the temperature of your life is what you are sowing right now. Does that make sense? So, it, for example, if I said, man, I'm hot, I need to change the temperature, I go back to the thermostat and I push it down three or four degrees, pretty quick we're going to feel a difference in the room, right? The second thing that we see here is that the temperature, and it should be up here on the screen for you, the temperature is what I reap. So the thermostat is what I sow, the temperature is what I reap, and then the third thing, and this is where we get all mixed up, the third thing is that the thermometer, or in other words, the, the, de the device that tells us how warm it is, is the law. Now, many of us, too many of us, believe that the law, or, or, or um, the Ten Commandments, or God's Word, or if I, if I just read my Bible enough, then I'm going to all of a sudden change the temperature of my life. Right? So, so for, for, for uh, visual sake, it would be like if I had a big thermometer on the wall. I said, man, it's 80 degrees in here. And I just kept messing with that thermometer. Well, if I shake it a little bit, maybe it'll change the temperature. Let me try to move it to the other side of the room. That'll probably help. Maybe if I put it on the floor, that'll help. Is anything I do with the thermometer going to change the temperature in the room? No, it's not. The only thing that's going to change the temperature of my life is what I'm sowing, right? The harvest that I'm going to get down the road is 100% determined on the seeds that I'm sowing right now. The temperature of my life is determined weeks and months from now based on the thermostat that I'm setting today. Here's what I mean by that. We too often look at the Bible and say, oh, I've, I've got this sin in my life. I'm just going to focus on this sin and I'm going to get this sin out of my life. Good luck with that. It's going to be a lifelong trial and a lifelong fight that you're ultimately going to lose because if you had the power over sin, then Jesus never had to come and die. That's the truth of the matter. Or, or maybe it's, maybe it's a, a, an attitude or an a, um, uh, action that we want in our life. We say, I'm going to just try harder. I'm going to, I'm going to be more committed to reading my Bible. Or I'm going to be more um, committed to coming to church. Or I'm going to do this service or that service. And I'm going to do it on my own. Here's the problem with that. If we were capable of being good on our own, what kind of hateful father would God have to be to send his son to die for us? Right? If there were any other way for us to change who we are other than Jesus dying, even if one of us had the ability to be a better person based on our own merit and our own uh, efforts, on our own abilities, if one of us, if one human in the history of mankind had the ability to be good enough to reach heaven, then God would have to be a hateful dad to send his son to die on the cross for our sins. Because we had another option. We could have done it. But we know for a fact we can't. And it seems like we get it on day one. When we come to Christ for salvation, we know, I cannot forgive my own sins. I can't take away my sins. But then we get in the day-to-day -day life and we start to think that somehow I have learned the ability to overcome sin. Let me tell you something. This thermostat that needs to be changed is your relationship with Jesus Christ. The only thing that's going to change the temperature of your life, whether you're hot, whether you're cold, whether you're following, whether you're not, is the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. Too often we spend our time trying to change our behavior. You might be able to do it for a little while, but you really didn't change who you are. We try to change how we act, and we think if I act a little bit differently, if I do a little bit uh, of a different plan in my life, things are going to change. I'm going to tell you from personal experience, the only thing that's going to change who you are and change what God can do with you is your relationship with Him. Because He's going to come in and He's going to change you from the inside out. 
And the more you lean on him and the more you see how hopeless you are, the more he can do with your life. And so as we spend our life looking at the law, and, and actually there's a verse here, it says that the law is our tutor. It should pop up here just a second. Yeah, Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Catch that verse. He says the law is our tutor. What does a tutor do? Tells you when you got the question wrong, right? Four plus four is not 12, Abby. You've got to try harder. That's what the tutor says. But did the tutor make math? No. They didn't create the law. They didn't make the law. They just told you you got the question wrong. The tutor points you back to Christ. So he says the law is there to show you you got some problems, right? The law is there to take that red pen and say this is wrong, this is wrong. And the answer is not going back to the tutor and saying, all right, law, fix this for me. Help me do this better. The answer is to turn to Christ, which is the only one that can change this. This verse in Galatians says that very thing. It says the law is to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. All it does is lead us to the thermostat. And when we get to that thermostat, that relationship with Christ is what's going to change the rest of our lives. I've told you this story before, but I think it bears repeating again. When I was a teenager, I could remember being the king of New Year's resolutions. Here's why. I was not happy with who I was. I was not happy with what I was doing. I was not happy with my behavior. I was the kind of teenager. Now, now th those of you that have teenagers, count your blessings that I was not your teenager. My mom would be saying amen if she was here. She knows the struggle. But I was the kind of teenager that would be out partying on Saturday night. My dad was a missionary, so I'd lead the singing on Sunday morning. You talk about having the game down. I knew how to pretend I was what I was supposed to be. But all along, I was in destitution because I never knew how can I really be what my dad is, right? My dad's a follower of Christ. My dad's a Christian. My dad loves the Lord, but I don't. Right now, I just do the motion so I don't get in trouble, right? I get up and lead the singing so I don't get in trouble. I told someone the other day, my mom, um, I got caught skipping school one time. Kids don't skip school. It was not a good idea especially if you have my mother or your mother either. They're, that's what they're there for, to punish you when you skip school. But when I was a teenager, I skipped school, and my mom's punishment was to make me write five sermons. Now, back then, I wasn't a preacher. Back then, I wasn't even a Christian. But my mom said, well, if I can just get you to study the Bible, maybe it'll make a difference. I can remember making fun of her and saying, you are going to cause me to never want to be a pastor. Well, we see how that turned out. Maybe she had a little more wisdom than I knew. But I can remember, I, I just knew the game. Man, if I just say the right words, if I just act the right way, mom and dad will get off my back. But inside I had this, this conflict always raging within me that I knew I don't want to be what I am. I can remember looking in the mirror and thinking, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to do the things I'm doing. I don't want to act the way that I act. And I used to spend every New Year's Eve I'd have a resolution. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to hang out with this friend. I'm not going to go to this place. I'm not going to say this thing. I'm not going to go over here and do this thing. And then that would last. So you're out of school until like the 5th of January. So that would last me about five days. I'd get back to school around all the same friends, around all the same influences, around all the same temptations, and do exactly the same things I was always doing. And I found myself getting deeper and deeper into sin because it was this... this um, hopelessness that I tried so hard and I'm never going to beat this. And I can remember being 17 years old and I can remember I, I'm sure I had just done something dumb. I don't know what dumb thing I had just done. Pick from the list of dumb things I was doing. And I remember praying, God, you know what? I am going to continue to be terrible 
but I just want to have a relationship with you. That was the prayer. And, and as a teenager, it probably didn't, it was not worded so nicely. But God, you're getting the raw end of this deal. I'm never going to be any better than I am today, but I want a relationship with you. If you'll take me, I'll have you. I just want to have you. And there was a change in my life. Never before had I said, God, I can't do it. It's not about me. It's all about you. Never before had I given up my control. I said, God, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do better. And I always thought that would be enough. But my sin in my life, all that it was doing was pointing me to Christ. And every time I sinned and every time I messed up, it was just a reminder that on my own, I am woefully inadequate. I am woefully imperfect. I have nothing to offer on my own. But when I came to the end of who I was, I said, Christ, if you want me, I'm yours. I really messed it up. I, I'm going to keep messing it up, but if you want me, I'm yours. You know what started to happen? Those things that I'd prayed for for years and tried for years to change in my life, God started to change those things in my life. God started to take the sin out of my life that I had no control over. God started to take the things that I used to say, well, I'm addicted to this or I'm addicted to that. And God said, no, I'm taking this out of your life because you have something more important now. You have a relationship with me. Let me tell you something. The thermostat in your life is a relationship with Christ. If you're spending your time and energy anywhere else, it's like tapping on a thermometer. It's never going to change the temperature. You want to change the temperature of your life. You want to change who you are six months from today? Work on your relationship with Christ today. So not only that, we see here the law of the, the, law of the harvest. I want to give you just a, a quick example here. We've got six things. Um, this, I, I put a website here on your handout. Uh, if you want to read more on this, this is actually a really good article if you want to spend some time understanding the biblical basis of all these. I don't want to spend a long time, but I do want us to just think about this as we think about the, the, the law of sowing and reaping. Is, is there's six rules here. He has seven in the article, so you have to go and see what that seventh was on your own. But the six that I put up here is this. You only reap what has been sown. All right, if you're not sowing anything into your life, don't expect a harvest. Right? He goes on further, not only that, you reap the same kind that you sow. So if you're sowing sin, if you're sowing to the flesh, if you're sowing selfishness, six months from today, you're going to keep reaping the same harvest that you've been reaping. He goes on further, he says, you reap later than you sow. And that's where some of us struggle. We think, man, I started praying today, I started reading my Bible, I started being committed to Christ. I should be completely different today. No seed grows in a day. It takes some time. It's got to have time to take root in your life and grow and produce the fruit that God intends it to produce. Not only that, he says you reap more than you sow. So I want you to think about this. You reap the kind you sow, you reap later than you sow, and you reap more than you sow. Now this can be really encouraging or really discouraging. If you're sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap a whole lot of corruption. That's what the Bible says. But if you're sowing to the Spirit, you're going to reap a whole lot of good. You're going to reap a whole lot of God's blessings. It's not going to be the same that you, it'll be the same kind, but it won't be the same amount. There's going to be a lot more. Not only that, he says you reap in proportion to what you sow. So if you sow a little, you, you're going to reap less than you would have. If you sow a lot, you're going to reap more than you would have if you sowed a little. We're going to talk about that again at the end. And the last thing I've got here <coughs> is that you can't do anything about the past harvest, only about the future. I want you to realize this, because this is where we get frustrated. We say, God, I've messed up so much. I've done so wrong. I've been so imperfect. And he knows that. But he says, let's start today. Sow the seeds today so that six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, the harvest that you're reaping will be different. I was a youth pastor to a young man named Brian. This was years ago. I'm not going to tell you his last name because he's actually 
Well, if I tell you that, you're going to know it too. He would let you know. He's thinking about coming to visit this summer. But Brian was my teenager back in 2012. He's married now. He's got his first son. He's doing great. But when Brian began a close relationship with me, this was the conversation that started it. He came to me and he said, I got expelled from my school for having a banned substance and I don't know what to do. That was it. That was the whole thing. He said, and, and, and it, over the next few weeks, I started meeting with Brian on a daily basis. He came to my office every day, drove himself, came, we'd play basketball, we'd talk for two or three hours. My oldest daughter, Lily, used to have such a relationship with Brian that had inside jokes that the teenagers didn't have because he was at my house spending time with my family and, and learning from what we did. Brian spent years um, living a life that was hidden from his parents, right? He was a, a straight-A kid. He played on the basketball team. Everybody looked up to him, but all that time he was living with substance abuse. He was doing things that nobody knew he was doing, and he kept doing them and kept doing them, and finally he got to the point where he couldn't hide it anymore. And he got to the end of himself, and he told me, I can remember the first time we sat down, he said, don't expect much because I really kind of suck. That, those were his words. Those were only from the mouth of a teenager. Don't expect much because I'm not going to be much better. You know what? He got to the end of who he was and knew that I've got nothing to offer. I need Christ. Brian, over the next few years, started to lean on Christ more and more. He started to read his Bible on a daily basis. And I'm proud to tell you today that Brian is a Sunday school teacher and a regular attender at his church. Not because mom and dad go, not because aunt and uncle make him go, not because I'm checking in on him. In fact, he'll send me a message every once in a while and say, God's doing this and this and this in my life. I'm excited about it. He went from as low as he could be to exactly where God wanted him. And it was all based on a relationship with Christ. Once he knew, I can't, I can't fix what I am now, but I don't want to be this forever. I'm going to turn to Christ. So, so here we've got the law of the harvest. Not only do we have the law of the harvest, I want to look at our two options. In life, we've got two options. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you have two options in life. And the first one is to sow selfishly. Sowing selfishly. And we see that here in the Bible. It says, sowing to the flesh leads to destruction. So I want to look at two words here. When we look at the word flesh, that word literally translates to self or selfish desires. I naturally want what my natural desires are what I naturally want as a person. My way, my stuff, my desires. That's the flesh, okay? So if we sow to self our own desires, what he says there is that we will reap destruction. Now this word destruction gets a little worse when you dig into it a little deeper because this word destruction really means decomposition or rot. So here's what he says. If you sow selfishly, you're going to reap a rotten harvest, right? Now here's the thing about rotten food. If you get rotten food, now there's a lot of things in your fridge that you can use later. Leftovers, maybe, maybe a recipe didn't turn out right, at least you can still eat it. But if food rots, it's decomposed, it's good for nothing, right? You throw it out and maybe it'll be fertilizer, I guess it's good for that. But a rotten harvest is no good. A rotten harvest can't be sold, a rotten harvest can't be used, a rotten harvest can't be consumed. It's completely a waste. And so when you sow to selfish desires in your life, the Bible is literally saying, you will reap a rotten harvest. It will be decomposed. It will be de destructed. There will be no good to this harvest. <coughs> so this, this destruction that you're going to reap when we, when we sow to the flesh comes from some simple things. And so maybe you're saying, all right, I don't want a rotten harvest, but what do I do? How do I know if I'm sowing selfishly? So I've got a few things here for you to look at. How to sow selfishly. First thing, do whatever I want whenever I want. Just go with the flow. Just go where life takes you. 
I promise it will take you to a fleshly, selfish uh, uh, sowing. It'll take you to where you're planting seeds that are all based on what you want in that minute. How often is what you want that minute the best thing for you? Very, very rarely, right? You drive past McDonald's, you've got food at home, but you're thinking, this will be done right now. And you're halfway through the cheeseburger and realizing it doesn't even taste good. I got like pulled into this temptation on half food, half man-made something. And it's not, even, it's not good for me. It doesn't taste good. The only thing that was good was that it was in the moment. When we are called and we do whatever we want to do in that moment, you're going to sow to the flesh. Next thing you see here, and this is where it gets a little more confusing maybe for you, is to try harder and do better. I'm telling you this from personal experience, and I think that some of you have experienced the same thing. If you spend your life trying to be a better person, reading self-help books, doing everything you can to better yourself and focused on self, that is a surefire, guaranteed way to reap a rotten harvest. Guaranteed, every single time. So how can that be? Here's the thing. If you go to search to find who you are inside, who you are as a person, you're going to be really disappointed. Because on our own, without the influence of Christ, we're nothing, right? We're nothing without Christ. What gives us value, what gives us the ability to be more than nothing is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Whether you uh, work a regular job, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you are a, um, just a guy passing through town, no matter who you are, you're called to follow Christ. You're called to live a life for Christ. In fact, if you have a job that's outside of the church, that job is your mission field. That's where God's placed you to be an influence to those that He's going to put around you. He hasn't forgotten about you and said, okay, you can have the week off, come back on Sunday and we'll do that church thing again. He's put you where you are and He's put the people in your life that are there so that you can be an influence to them and try to call them and reach them for Christ. That's what you're called to do. But if you spend all your time working on you, making yourself better, focused on self and being better, it's going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead to depression because when you realize that you can't do better, it's going to be a pretty sad moment until you know that Christ is who's going to change you. So we can try harder and do better. The next thing is that if we run away from conflict, contact, and responsibility. Another way to sow the flesh is to run away from conflict, contact and responsibility as a young man i used to be so non-confrontational and still still today i struggle with the desire to stay away from conflict or any kind of disagreement i'd rather just agree with you and most of the times that's okay but there are times that god puts conflict and disagreement and and difficult situations into your life because that's the only way you're going to grow that's the only way he can take you to the next step of spiritual maturity is that you've got to go through some of that conflict you've got to you've got to kind of uh, Dave Ramsey calls it pay the stupid tax right I, we've all paid a little bit of stupid tax we've done something and we've got to pay but we've got to pay for it and that's part of growing and that's part of maturing as an individual and, and, and as a Christian is that we've got to go through that we've got to be um, we've got to embrace difficult relationships that can be hard to do Sometimes difficult relationships are just enough to send you over the edge. You had a hard day already, and now you've got to have a difficult conversation. God didn't do that by accident. God put that there to grow you and make you who He's called you to be. So that's the next thing. You can run away from those, um, those difficult relationships, run away from conflict and contact. And the last thing is this. Uh, last two things. Rely on yourself 
to fix everything and to be happy. The moment you start leaning on self to fix anything in life, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether it's family, whether it's relational, when you start relying totally on self to fix your life, it's going to be a real quick, uh, it's the expressway to depression, right? It's the expressway to frustration because you're going to get there fast. When you realize, I have no ability to fix these things on my own. In fact, these things are still, as we look, they're still pointing you back to Christ. Every difficulty you face, every, every hard time that you're going to go through in life, it serves the purpose of pointing you back to Jesus Christ. Last thing is this, in any way leaning on yourself. I want you to understand, the, the enemy of your success, or the enemy of you fulfill, uh, fulfilling the potential that Christ has put in you, is leaning on yourself. Self is the enemy of God's will in your life. Leaning on self, relying on self, trusting myself, loving myself more than I love Christ, is all going to lead to this rotten harvest that he tells us about. If you are focused on self, if you're focused on the flesh, you will only reap a rotten harvest. So that's the bad news, but here's the good news. You have a second option. The second option is to sow successfully. So we've looked at sowing selfishly. Now we're going to look at sowing successfully. And the Bible says it really clearly here. He says that sowing to the Spirit leads to reaping the promises of God. And here he says eternal life. But he, the way that that word is phrased there, it extends into uh, eternal life doesn't start when you die, right? So we have life abundant on earth when we've accepted Christ. He changes your life from the moment you accept him. He doesn't say, okay, here's your ticket to heaven, go die, and then you're going to go to heaven and everything's going to change. No, he changes your life the moment that you sow to the Spirit, the moment that you lean to him, the moment that you change your focus from flesh to the Spirit, everything in life is going to change. That harvest is going to come in. So you say, how do we sow to the Spirit? First, we need to understand the Spirit's the part of the Trinity that dwells within us and guides us. Right? So the moment you accept Christ as your Savior, the Spirit indwells you. We're taught that throughout the New Testament, that the, the, the word paraclete, or in other words, the one that comes beside you, the comforter has come. That when Jesus died on the cross and ascended into heaven, He sent the Spirit to walk with us through everyday life. Now, no longer do we have to come to the church building to meet with the Spirit. The Spirit dwells within you. He's in your heart. He's in your soul. He's living in you, guiding you in your daily walk. Now, here's the problem. There are seasons in life that we get really good at drowning out the Spirit, right? We get really good at saying, hey, be quiet. I want to do it my way. I'll ask you when I need your help. And then usually that ends up in like emergency prayer. Have you ever had the emergency prayer? God, I really messed up. Really fixed this. I don't know what to do, right? Like that's, that's where that ends. When we say, I'll ask you when I need help, it's in the emergency moment. But here, if we sow to the Spirit, <coughs> that Spirit's what's inside us and guiding us. Here's how we do that. First way that you're going to sow to the Spirit is to communicate with God. We communicate with God very simply through Bible and prayer. Through Bible reading and prayer. If you're not reading your Bible and praying regularly, I'm not saying that these are works that are going to make you better. What I'm saying is if you don't know what God said, how can you do it? If you don't know what God's saying in His Word, how can you possibly follow it? If you never pray and never speak to God, how can that relationship possibly be strong? Imagine this. Imagine you went a year without speaking to your spouse. Is that relationship going to be better or worse? worse don't say better. <laughs> that's, a, that's not a trick question. It might, Leah's like, I don't know. That might be 
a year vacation might be nice, but no. If you don't spend time communicating with anybody in any relationship, that relationship begins to die. That relationship can't thrive if there's no communication. So that's step number one. If you're not communicating with Christ, if you're a believer, if you've accepted Christ, you've got the Spirit of Christ within you, you've got to be reading your Bible and you've got to be praying. Second way that we are, uh, we're going to sow to the Spirit is to respond to God. So not only are we going to communicate with God, we're also going to respond to God. And that means we're going to follow what He leads us to do. This is where it gets more difficult for some Christians. This is where it gets more difficult for all of us in reality. But this is where some Christians fall off the wagon. They say, well, I'll read and I'll pray, but I don't really want to do, I don't want to change my lifestyle. I don't want to change the things that I'm doing. But the Bible says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. He says, if you're not a doer of the word, you're like the guy that goes and looks in the mirror in the morning, got junk all over your face, and you just go out anyway. That's what he says. God's word is a mirror to point back at our lives. And as we see these issues, they should drive us to Christ. Right? It's the same thing as the thermostat. If I see dirt on my face, I don't start scrubbing the mirror. I start washing my face. If I see in, my, in God's Word that there are things in me that need to change, I respond to Him. I, incur, I, I increase my relationship with Him. I don't try to fix the situation. I know that God has me there for a purpose. So he says respond to God. Not only that, not only do we need to respond to God, finally here we need to commit to God. It means that above anything and everything else, your allegiance must be to God. Listen, if you're not here, if you're not at that point in life, you, you've got to be a Christian before you are whatever race you are. You've got to be a Christian before you're an American, before you're a Republican or a Democrat, before you're a Florida Gators fan, before you are anything else, you are a Christian. That's your primary allegiance. And if anything else gets in that spot, if you are anything else, if your mom or your dad or your daughter or your son or your student or you are um, employee, before you are Christian, life's going to all get out of whack. Because you're sowing to whatever it is that you've put at number one in your life. If that's your workplace, everything is going into that workplace. And you know what the Bible says? You'll reap corruption. Still sowing to the flesh. If it's being a mom, uh, you know what? It is Mother's Day and I do want you to be a good mom. But if all of your focus goes to being a mom and there's no focus on Christ and mom is number one before anything else, that's the greatest way to lose your kids. That's the worst example you can be for your kids. That's the greatest way to guarantee that Satan has access to your kids is by being a mom first and a Christian second. Let me tell you, if it's being a husband or a wife, the best example you can give to your kids, the best husband that you can be, the best wife that you can be is to be a Christian first before anything else. Because if anything else has your allegiance, you are worse at everything else that you're doing because you're sowing to corruption. Last thing here as we look at the final point, how do we sow to the Spirit? Here's what it boils down to. It's a real relationship with God. Listen, if you look at your life and you say, I want to be different. I don't want to be who I am. I don't want to be what I've been for the last years. I don't want to continue in the same sinful patterns. I don't want to, to reap what I've been reaping. You've got to change the thermostat today. And that thermostat's very simple. That change that's got to be made in your life is that you've got to sow to the Spirit. You've got to have a relationship with Christ and maybe you're here today and you're saying, I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? It's a very simple thought. Here's what it comes down to. I, want, I always like to ex explain it as a marriage, right? So a marriage starts with a man proposing to his wife. 
Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins. And at that moment, that was the proposal made to all mankind. I want to be your savior. I want you to be my child. I want you to follow me for all of eternity. That was the proposal right there on the cross. The next step in any marriage is the, that response. You know what? Sometimes that response is no. And throughout our world, you may see no over and over that people turn away from Christ and they don't want his relationship. But sometimes you have a yes. And that yes is a commitment. Now, I have known many people, um, many college friends, I guess I'll put it that way. At 21, 22, I guess you don't really know what you want very well. But uh, I have a lot of friends that I grew up with in college that said yes to the proposal and there was no wedding. There was no marriage. Because that commitment wasn't really there. So, for example, if I proposed to my wife and she said, yes, yeah, that sounds good. I got nothing else to go, you know, nothing else going on next Saturday. We might as well get married. Let's do it. And then I'm, walk, I'm driving down the road and I see her holding some other guy's hand walking down the street. Was that really a yes? So, so many times we think that salvation is just this prayer. I said a prayer, I'm good. I got my ticket to heaven. But if you never committed to Christ, if you never began a relationship with him that's a committed relationship... You never got that part of him that's going to change you. You never got that salvation that you thought you were getting, that life change that you should have been experiencing, only comes when you have a real committed relationship with Christ. So, so that's the second step, your, your response. The third thing is that wedding day. So this is the real yes. When I choose, I am going to marry you. There has to be, in everybody's life, a real day of commitment to Christ. And that's just the starting point. Because then the rest of the life is marriage. The rest of your life is marriage. That relationship that should only grow stronger through the years. Now maybe you, are, you could be anywhere in that process. Maybe this is the first time that you heard that Jesus wants you as his child. That's where you respond. That's where you say, I'm going to follow him. I want a relationship with Christ. Maybe you've already got that relationship. And you've already, you've already committed to him. And you're already walking with him. But there, you're... you're relationship with him is not strong and you know that you're consistently sowing to the flesh you're still doing what you want to do you're still doing what you think you need to do you're still trying to fix things yourself let me tell you today's the day to commit to him that you're going to be all in as a follower of christ maybe you are following him and you're close to him but maybe you're not sharing that with those around you as we follow christ no matter where you are in your relationship with him there's another step for you to take You've never arrived. Even Paul says, I have not arrived. I've got a long way to go. And he was kind of, the model of all preachers of, of history was Paul. And he said, I haven't arrived, so I know that I will never arrive until the moment I get to glory, the moment I'm in heaven. And the same thing's true for you. Wherever you are, there's another step to take in your relationship with Christ. <clears throat> Wherever that may be, the last thing I want us to look at, and, and this morning I, I wanted to spend just a couple moments looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this goes right into the same, same lesson. Here's what 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says. Verse 6 through 8, it says, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of us must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And I want to use this verse just to share my heart for First Baptist Church. What God is doing in our church and what God's going to continue to do in our church if we sow to Him. We've seen some seeds sown in our community. 
between our, our um, back-to-school bash, whether it be what we're doing at the YMCA, whether it be our senior adult luncheon, we're sowing into our community, and God's beginning to see some of that harvest come in. But I want to say this. The Bible says if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. Earlier we said if we sow, we're going to reap in conjunction to what we sow. It's going to correlate to one another. If we sow a lot, we're going to reap a lot. And as I look at our church, I look at what God's been doing in our church, and I know that He's got more. He's got more for us. We give great offerings to missions, but I know He has so much more in store for us. He has, I believe with all my heart that there are people in this room that will be on the mission field in days to come. I believe it. I, I know it. There are people in this room that have, have been on the mission field in, in years past. I don't want to be looking in the rear view, though. I want to look and see what God has for us. And I want us to really think about this and pray about this, that God said, if we, reap spare, uh, if we sow sparingly, that's the same way we're going to reap. I know that it's easy for us to say, man, we're just this little church in a little spot here between Sarasota and Venice, and we're just, you know, we're doing what we should be doing. But I just want to, I just want to have your heart the same as mine, that there is so much more potential that God's given us. Thousands and thousands of people drive by our church every day. Thousands and thousands of people that are on their way to hell drive by our church every day. As we continue to sow into our community, as we continue to sow into missions, as we continue to sow in the Spirit as a church, I'm, I'm excited about what God's going to do here at First Baptist Church. So as the musicians come today, I want you to be praying. There's, there's a prayer for every single, buddy, uh, single person in here. Whether you're the one that's never accepted Christ and you need to make that decision today, I invite you to come. Maybe you have accepted Christ and you've been just kind of halfway serving. You've just kind of been given what was easy to give. You've not really been sacrificing to do what God's called you to do. Commit to give more. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you say, personally, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I invite you to come and pray for our church. That as we continue to sow seeds in our community and around the world, that God will be faithful to have that harvest come. And not just in people, not just in numbers, but in our growth as an individual. But in our growth as a church, in our love for Him, that those seeds will grow. Maybe it's you that needs to come and join the church today. Today would be as good a day as any other for you to come and be a part of our fellowship. Let me tell you something. If I wasn't already a member, I'd be joining. God's been doing great things. God's been doing big things in our church. And He's not done. He's continuing. He's pushing us forward. And I want you to be a part of it. Come and pray. As the ushers have come forward, would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for the opportunity to serve you. 
We thank you for the potential that you've placed in each and every one of us to be your followers, to be your child, Lord. I pray that you just help us to be faithful to sow to the Spirit, God, knowing that you are the difference maker, that you are the thermostat for our lives, God. I pray, Lord, that uh, if you've touched a heart, Lord, um, and somebody's convicted here today, that, God, either they need you or they need to return to you, God, I pray that you just continue to impress that on their hearts, Lord. Be with our church as we move forward, God, and as we continue to follow what you have us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.